File 37 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book 1, Part 4, Section 5 of the Immateriality of the Soul. Having found such contradictions and difficulties in every system concerning external objects, and in the idea of matter, which we fancy so clear and determinate, we shall naturally expect still greater difficulties and contradictions in every hypothesis concerning our internal perceptions and the nature of the mind, which we are apt to imagine so much more obscure and uncertain. But in this we should deceive ourselves. The intellectual world, though involved in infinite obscurities, is not perplexed with any such contradictions as those we have discovered in the natural. What is known concerning it agrees with itself, and what is unknown we must be contented to leave so. It is true, would we hearken to certain philosophers, they promise to diminish our ignorance, but I am afraid it is at the hazard of running us into contradictions from which the subject is of itself exempted. These philosophers are the curious reasoners concerning the material or immaterial substances in which they suppose our perceptions to inhere. In order to put a stop to these endless cavils on both sides, I know no better method than to ask these philosophers in a few words what they mean by substance and inhesion, and after they have answered this question, it will then be reasonable, and not till then, to enter seriously into the dispute. This question we have found impossible to be answered with regard to matter and body. But besides that in the case of the mind it labours under all the same difficulties, it is burdened with some additional ones which are peculiar to that subject. As every idea is derived from a precedent impression, had we any idea of the substance of our minds, we must also have an impression of it, which is very difficult, if not impossible, to be conceived. For how can an impression represent a substance otherwise than by resembling it? And how can an impression resemble a substance, since, according to this philosophy, it is not a substance, and has none of the peculiar qualities or characteristics of a substance? But leaving the question of what may or may not be for that other what actually is, I desire those philosophers who pretend that we have an idea of the substance of our minds to point out the impression that produces it and tell distinctly after what manner that impression operates and from what object it is derived. Is it an impression of sensation or of reflection? Is it pleasant, or painful, or indifferent? Does it attend us at all times, or does it only return at intervals? 
if at intervals, at what times principally does it return, and by what causes is it produced? If, instead of answering these questions, any one should evade the difficulty by saying that the definition of a substance is something which may exist by itself, and that this definition ought to satisfy us, should this be said, I should observe that this definition agrees to everything that can possibly be conceived, and never will serve to distinguish substance from accident, or the soul from its perceptions. For thus I reason. Whatever is clearly conceived may exist, and whatever is clearly conceived, after any manner, may exist after the same manner. This is one principle which has been already acknowledged. Again, everything which is different is distinguishable, and everything which is distinguishable is separable by the imagination. This is another principle. My conclusion from both is, that since all our perceptions are different from each other, and from everything else in the universe, they are also distinct and separable, and may be considered as separately existent, and may exist separately, and have no need of anything else to support their existence. They are, therefore, substances as far as this definition explains a substance. Thus, neither by considering the first origin of ideas, nor by means of a definition, are we able to arrive at any satisfactory notion of substance, which seems to me a sufficient reason for abandoning utterly that dispute concerning the materiality and immateriality of the soul, and makes me absolutely condemn even the question itself. We have no perfect idea of anything but of a perception. A substance is entirely different from a perception. We have, therefore, no idea of a substance. Inhesion in something is supposed to be requisite to support the existence of our perceptions. Nothing appears requisite to support the existence of a perception. We have, therefore, no idea of inhesion. What possibility, then, of answering that question, whether perceptions inhere in a material or immaterial substance, when we do not so much as understand the meaning of the question? There is one argument commonly employed for the immateriality of the soul, which seems to me remarkable. Whatever is extended consists of parts, and whatever consists of parts is divisible, if not in reality, at least in the imagination. But it is impossible anything divisible can be conjoined to a thought or perception, which is a being altogether inseparable and indivisible. For supposing such a conjunction, would the indivisible thought exist on the left, or on the right hand of this extended divisible body, on the surface or in the middle, on the back or foreside of it. If it be conjoined with the extension, 
it must exist somewhere within its dimensions. If it exists within its dimensions, it must either exist in one particular part, and then that particular part is indivisible, and the perception is conjoined only with it, not with the extension. Or, if the thought exists in every part, it must also be extended and separable, and divisible as well as the body, which is utterly absurd and contradictory. For can any one conceive a passion of a yard in length, a foot in breadth, and an inch in thickness? Thought, therefore, and extension are qualities wholly incompatible, and never can incorporate together into one subject. This argument affects not the question concerning the substance of the soul, but only that concerning its local conjunction with matter, and therefore it may not be improper to consider in general what objects are or are not susceptible of a local conjunction. This is a curious question, and may lead us to some discoveries of considerable moment. The first notion of space and extension is derived solely from the senses of sight and feeling. Nor is there anything but what is colored or tangible that has parts disposed after such a manner as to convey that idea. When we diminish or increase a relish, it is not after the same manner that we diminish or increase any visible object and when several sounds strike our hearing at once, custom and reflection alone make us form an idea of the degrees of the distance and contiguity of those bodies from which they are derived. Whatever marks the place of its existence either must be extended or must be a mathematical point, without parts or composition. What is extended must have a particular figure, a square, round, triangular, none of which will agree to a desire, or indeed to any impression or idea, except of these two senses above mentioned. Neither ought a desire, though indivisible, to be considered as a mathematical point, for in that case it would be possible by the addition of others to make two three, four desires, and these disposed and situated in such a manner as to have a determinate length, breadth, and thickness, which is evidently absurd. It will not be surprising after this if I deliver a maxim which is condemned by several metaphysicians and is esteemed contrary to the most certain principles of human reason. This maxim is that an object may exist and yet be nowhere, and I assert that this is not only possible, but that the greatest part of beings do and must exist after this manner. An object may be said to be nowhere when its parts are not so situated with respect to each other as to form any figure or quantity nor the whole with respect to other bodies, so as to answer to our notions of contiguity or distance. 
Now this is evidently the case with all our perceptions and objects, except those of the sight and feeling. A moral reflection cannot be placed on the right or on the left hand of a passion, nor can a smell or sound be either of a circular or a square figure. These objects and perceptions, so far from requiring any particular place, are absolutely incompatible with it, and even the imagination cannot attribute it to them. And as to the absurdity of supposing them to be nowhere, we may consider that if the passions and sentiments appear to the perception to have any particular place, the idea of extension might be derived from them as well as from the sight and touch, contrary to what we have already established. If they appear not to have any particular place, they may possibly exist in the same manner, since whatever we conceive is possible. It will not now be necessary to prove that those perceptions which are simple and exist nowhere are incapable of any conjunction in place with matter or body which is extended and divisible, since it is impossible to found a relation but on some common quality. It may be better worth our while to remark that this question of the local conjunction of objects does not only occur in metaphysical disputes concerning the nature of the soul, but that even in common life we have every moment occasion to examine it. Thus, supposing we consider a fig at one end of the table, and an olive at the other, it is evident that in forming the complex ideas of these substances, one of the most obvious is that of their different relishes, and it is as evident that we incorporate and conjoin these qualities with such as are colored and tangible. The bitter taste of the one, and sweet of the other, are supposed to lie in the very visible body, and to be separated from each other by the whole length of the table. This is so notable and so natural an illusion, that it may be proper to consider the principles from which it is derived. Though an extended object be incapable of a conjunction in place with another that exists without any place or extension, yet are they susceptible of many other relations. Thus the taste and smell of any fruit are inseparable from its other qualities of color and tangibility and whichever of them be the cause or effect, it is certain they are always coexistent. Nor are they only coexistent in general, but also cotemporary in their appearance in the mind, and it is upon the application of the extended body to our senses we perceive its particular taste and smell. These relations, then, of causation and contiguity in the time of their appearance betwixt the extended object and the quality which exists without any particular place, must have such an effect on the mind that upon the appearance of one it will immediately turn its thought to the conception of the other.
nor is this all. We not only turn our thought from one to the other upon account of their relation, but likewise endeavour to give them a new relation, that is, that of a conjunction in place, that we may render the transition more easy and natural. For it is a quality which I shall often have occasion to remark in human nature, and shall explain more fully in its proper place, that when objects are united by any relation, we have a strong propensity to add some new relation to them, in order to complete the union. In our arrangement of bodies, we never fail to place such as are resembling in contiguity to each other, or at least in correspondent points of view. Why? But because we feel a satisfaction in joining the relation of contiguity to that of resemblance, or the resemblance of situation to that of qualities. The effects of this propensity have been in section two towards the end already observed in that resemblance which we so readily suppose betwixt particular impressions and their external causes but we shall not find a more evident effect of it than in the present instance where from the relations of causation and contiguity in time betwixt two objects we feign likewise that of a conjunction in place, in order to strengthen the connection. But whatever confused notions we may form of an union in place betwixt an extended body, as a fig and its particular taste, it is certain that upon reflection we must observe in this union something altogether unintelligible and contradictory. For should we ask ourselves one obvious question, that is, if the taste which we conceive to be contained in the circumference of the body is in every part of it, or in one only, we must quickly find ourselves at a loss, and perceive the impossibility of ever giving a satisfactory answer. We cannot reply that it is only in one part for experience convinces us that every part has the same relish we can as little reply that it exists in every part for then we must suppose it figured and extended which is absurd and incomprehensible here then we are influenced by two principles directly contrary to each other that is that inclination of our fancy by which we are determined to incorporate the taste with the extended object, and our reason, which shows us the impossibility of such an union. Being divided betwixt these opposite principles, we renounce neither one nor the other, but involve the subject in such confusion and obscurity that we no longer perceive the opposition. We suppose that the taste exists within the circumference of the body, but in such a manner that it fills the whole without extension, and exists entire in every part without separation. In short, we use in our most familiar way of thinking 
that scholastic principle which when crudely proposed appears so shocking of totum in toto and totum in qualibet parte which is much the same as if we should say that a thing is in a certain place and yet is not there all this absurdity proceeds from our endeavouring to bestow a place on what is utterly incapable of it and that endeavour again arises from our inclination to complete an union which is founded on causation and a contiguity of time by attributing to the objects a conjunction in place but if ever reason be of sufficient force to overcome prejudice it is certain that in the present case it must prevail for we have only this choice left either to suppose that some beings exist without any place or that they are figured and extended or that when they are incorporated with extended objects the whole is in the whole and the whole in every part the absurdity of the two last suppositions proves sufficiently the veracity of the first nor is there any fourth opinion for as to the supposition of their existence in the manner of mathematical points it resolves itself into the second opinion and supposes that several passions may be placed in a circular figure and that a certain number of smells conjoined with a certain number of sounds may make a body of twelve cubic inches which appears ridiculous upon the bare mentioning of it but though in this view of things we cannot refuse to condemn the materialists who conjoin all thought with extension yet a little reflection will show us equal reason for blaming their antagonists who conjoin all thought with a simple and indivisible substance the most vulgar philosophy informs us that no external object can make itself known to the mind immediately and without the interposition of an image or perception that table which just now appears to me is only a perception and all its qualities are qualities of a perception now the most obvious of all its qualities is extension the perception consists of parts these parts are so situated as to afford us the notion of distance and contiguity of length breadth and thickness the termination of these three dimensions is what we call figure this figure is movable separable and divisible mobility and separability are the distinguishing properties of extended objects and to cut short all disputes the very idea of extension is copied from nothing but an impression and consequently must perfectly agree to it to say the idea of extension agrees to anything is to say it is extended the free thinker may now triumph in his turn and having found there are impressions and ideas really extended may ask his antagonists how they can incorporate a simple and indivisible subject with an extended perception all the arguments of theologians may here be retorted upon them 
is the indivisible subject or immaterial substance if you will on the left or on the right hand of the perception is it in this particular part or in that other is it in every part without being extended or is it entire in any one part without deserting the rest it is impossible to give any answer to these questions but what will both be absurd in itself and will account for the union of our indivisible perceptions with an extended substance this gives me an occasion to take anew into consideration the question concerning the substance of the soul and though i have condemned that question as utterly unintelligible yet i cannot forbear proposing some farther reflections concerning it i assert that the doctrine of the immateriality simplicity and indivisibility of a thinking substance is a true atheism and will serve to justify all those sentiments for which spinoza is so universally infamous from this topic i hope at least to reap one advantage that my adversaries will not have any pretext to render the present doctrine odious by their declamations when they see that they can be so easily retorted on them the fundamental principle of the atheism of spinoza is the doctrine of the simplicity of the universe and the unity of that substance in which he supposes both thought and matter to inhere there is only one substance says he in the world and that substance is perfectly simple and indivisible and exists everywhere without any local presence whatever we discover externally by sensation whatever we feel internally by reflection all these are nothing but modifications of that one simple and necessarily existent being and are not possessed of any separate or distinct existence every passion of the soul every configuration of matter however different and various inhere in the same substance and preserve in themselves their characters of distinction without communicating them to that subject in which they inhere the same substratum if i may so speak supports the most different modifications without any difference in itself and varies them without any variation neither time nor place nor all the diversity of nature are able to produce any composition or change in its perfect simplicity and identity i believe this brief exposition of the principles of that famous atheist will be sufficient for the present purpose and that without entering farther into these gloomy and obscure regions i shall be able to shew that this hideous hypothesis is almost the same with that of the immateriality of the soul which has become so popular to make this evident let us in part two section six remember that as every idea is derived from a preceding perception it is impossible our idea of a perception and that of an object or external existence can ever represent 
what are specifically different from each other. Whatever difference we may suppose betwixt them, it is still incomprehensible to us, and we are obliged either to conceive an external object merely as a relation without a relative, or to make it the very same with a perception or impression. The consequence I shall draw from this may, at first sight, appear a mere sophism, but upon the least examination will be found solid and satisfactory. I say, then, that since we may suppose, but never can conceive, a specific difference betwixt an object and impression, any conclusion we form concerning the connection and repugnance of impressions, will not be known certainly to be applicable to objects. But that, on the other hand, whatever conclusions of this kind we form concerning objects, will most certainly be applicable to impressions. The reason is not difficult. As an object is supposed to be different from an impression, we cannot be sure that the circumstance upon which we found our reasoning is common to both, supposing we form the reasoning upon the impression. It is still possible that the object may differ from it in that particular. But when we first form our reasoning concerning the object, it is beyond doubt that the same reasoning must extend to the impression. And that, because the quality of the object upon which the argument is founded, must at least be conceived by the mind, and could not be conceived unless it were common to an impression, since we have no idea but what is derived from that origin. Thus we may establish it as a certain maxim, that we can never by any principle, but by an irregular kind, such as that of section 2, form the coherence of our perceptions, of reasoning from experience, discover a connection or repugnance betwixt objects, which extends not to impressions, though the inverse proposition may not be equally true, that all the discoverable relations of impressions are common to objects. To apply this to the present case, there are two different systems of being presented to which I suppose myself under a necessity of assigning some substance or ground of adhesion. I observe first the universe of objects or of body, the sun, moon, and stars, the earth, seas, plants, animals, men, ships, houses, and other productions either of art or nature. Here Spinoza appears and tells me that these are only modifications, and that the subject in which they inhere is simple, incompounded, and indivisible. After this I consider the other system of beings, that is, the universe of thought, or my impressions and ideas. There I observe another sun, moon, and stars, and earth, and seas, covered and inhabited by plants and animals, towns, houses, mountains, rivers, and, in short, 
everything I can discover or conceive in the first system. Upon my inquiring concerning these, theologians present themselves and tell me that these also are modifications, and modifications of one simple, uncompounded, and indivisible substance. Immediately upon which I am deafened with the noise of a hundred voices that treat the first hypothesis with detestation and scorn, and the second with applause and veneration. I turn my attention to these hypotheses, to see what may be the reason of so great a partiality, and find that they have the same fault of being unintelligible, and that, as far as we can understand them, they are so much alike that it is impossible to discover any absurdity in one which is not common to both of them. We have no idea of any quality in an object which does not agree to and may not represent a quality in an impression, and that because all our ideas are derived from our impressions. We can never, therefore, find any repugnance betwixt an extended object as a modification and a simple uncompounded essence as its substance, unless that repugnance takes place equally betwixt the perception or impression of that extended object and the same uncompounded essence. Every idea of a quality in an object passes through an impression, and therefore every perceivable relation, whether of connection or repugnance, must be common both to objects and impressions. But though this argument, considered in general, seems evident beyond all doubt and contradiction, yet to make it more clear and sensible, let us survey it in detail, and see whether all the absurdities which have been found in the system of Spinoza may not likewise be discovered in that of theologians. See Bale's Dictionary, Article of Spinoza. First, it has been said against Spinoza, according to the scholastic way of talking, rather than thinking that a mode not being any distinct or separate existence must be the very same with its substance, and consequently the extension of the universe must be in a manner identified with that simple, uncompounded essence in which the universe is supposed to inhere. But this, it may be pretended, is utterly impossible and inconceivable unless the indivisible substance expand itself so as to correspond to the extension, or the extension contract itself so as to answer to the indivisible substance. This argument seems just as far as we can understand it, and it is plain nothing is required but a change in the terms to apply the same argument to our extended perceptions and the simple essence of the soul. The ideas of objects and perceptions being in every respect the same, only attended with the supposition of a difference that is unknown and incomprehensible. Secondly, it has been said that we have no idea of substance which is not applicable to matter, nor any idea of a distinct substance which is not applicable to every distinct portion of matter. 
Matter, therefore, is not a mode, but a substance, and each part of matter is not a distinct mode, but a distinct substance. I have already proved that we have no perfect idea of substance, but that taking it for something that can exist by itself, it is evident every perception is a substance, and every distinct part of a perception a distinct substance. And consequently, the one hypothesis labors under the same difficulties in this respect with the other. Thirdly, it has been objected to the system of one simple substance in the universe, that this substance being the support or substratum of everything, must at the very same instant be modified into forms which are contrary and incompatible. The round and square figures are incompatible in the same substance at the same time. How then is it possible that the same substance can at once be modified into that square table and into this round one? I ask the same question concerning the impressions of these tables, and find that the answer is no more satisfactory in one case than in the other. It appears, then, that to whatever side we turn, the same difficulties follow us, and that we cannot advance one step towards the establishing the simplicity and immateriality of the soul, without preparing the way for a dangerous and irrecoverable atheism. It is the same case if, instead of calling thought a modification of the soul, we should give it the more ancient and yet more modish name of an action. By an action we mean much the same thing as what is commonly called an abstract mode, that is, something which, properly speaking, is neither distinguishable nor separable from its substance, and is only conceived by a distinction of reason or an abstraction. But nothing is gained by this change of the term of modification for that of action, nor do we free ourselves from one single difficulty by its means, as will appear from the two following reflections. First, I observe that the word action, according to this explication of it, can never justly be applied to any perception as derived from a mind or thinking substance. Our perceptions are all really different and separable, and distinguishable from each other, and from everything else which we can imagine, and therefore it is impossible to conceive how they can be the action or abstract mode of any substance. The instance of motion, which is commonly made use of to shew after what manner perception depends, as an action upon its substance, rather confounds than instructs us. Motion to all appearance induces no real nor essential change on the body but only varies its relation to other objects. But betwixt a person in the morning walking in a garden with company agreeable to him, and a person in the afternoon enclosed in a dungeon and full of terror, despair, and resentment, there seems to be a radical difference, and of quite another kind, than what is produced on a body by the change of its situation. 
as we conclude from the distinction and separability of their ideas that external objects have a separate existence from each other so when we make these ideas themselves our objects we must draw the same conclusion concerning them according to the precedent reasoning at least it must be confessed that having no idea of the substance of the soul it is impossible for us to tell how it can admit of such differences and even contrarieties of perception without any fundamental change and consequently can never tell in what sense perceptions are actions of that substance the use therefore of the word action unaccompanied with any meaning instead of that of modification makes no addition to our knowledge nor is of any advantage to the doctrine of the immateriality of the soul i add in the second place that if it brings any advantage to that cause it must bring an equal to the cause of atheism for do our theologians pretend to make a monopoly of the word action and may not the atheists likewise take possession of it and affirm that plants animals men etc are nothing but particular actions of one simple universal substance which exerts itself from a blind and absolute necessity this you'll say is utterly absurd i own it is unintelligible but at the same time assert according to the principles above explained that it is impossible to discover any absurdity in the supposition that all the various objects in nature are actions of one simple substance which absurdity will not be applicable to a like supposition concerning impressions and ideas from these hypotheses concerning the substance and local conjunction of our perceptions we may pass to another which is more intelligible than the former and more important than the latter that is concerning the cause of our perceptions matter and motion it is commonly said in the schools however varied are still matter and motion and produce only a difference in the position and situation of objects divide a body as often as you please it is still body place it in any figure nothing ever results but figure or the relation of parts move it in any manner you still find motion or a change of relation it is absurd to imagine that motion in a circle for instance should be nothing but merely motion in a circle while motion in another direction as in an ellipse should also be a passion or moral reflection that the shocking of two globular particles should become a sensation of pain and that the meeting of two triangular ones should afford a pleasure now as these different shocks and variations and mixtures are the only changes of which matter is susceptible and as these never afford us any idea of thought or perception it is concluded to be impossible that thought can ever be caused by matter 
few have been able to withstand the seeming evidence of this argument, and yet nothing in the world is more easy than to refute it. We need only reflect on what has been proved at large, that we are never sensible of any connection betwixt causes and effects, and that it is only by our experience of their constant conjunction we can arrive at any knowledge of this relation. Now as all objects which are not contrary are susceptible of a constant conjunction, and as no real objects are contrary, see part 3, section 15, I have inferred from these principles that to consider the matter a priori anything may produce anything, and that we shall never discover a reason why any object may or may not be the cause of any other, however great or however little the resemblance may be betwixt them. This evidently destroys the precedent reasoning concerning the cause of thought or perception. For though there appear no manner of connection betwixt motion or thought, the case is the same with all other causes and effects. Place one body of a pound weight on one end of a lever, and another body of the same weight on another end, you will never find in these bodies any principle of motion dependent on their distances from the center more than of thought and perception. If you pretend, therefore, to prove a priori, that such a position of bodies can never cause thought, because turn it which way you will, it is nothing but a position of bodies, you must by the same course of reasoning conclude that it can never produce motion, since there is no more apparent connection in the one case than in the other. But as this latter conclusion is contrary to evident experience, and as it is possible we may have a like experience in the operations of the mind, and may perceive a constant conjunction of thought and motion, you reason too hastily when from the mere consideration of the ideas you conclude that it is impossible motion can ever produce thought, or a different position of parts give rise to a different passion or reflection. Nay, it is not only possible we may have such an experience, but it is certain we have it, since every one may perceive that the different dispositions of his body change his thoughts and sentiments. And should it be said that this depends on the union of soul and body, I would answer that we must separate the question concerning the substance of the mind from that concerning the cause of its thought, and that confining ourselves to the latter question, we find by the comparing their ideas that thought and motion are different from each other, and by experience that they are constantly united, which being all the circumstances that enter into the idea of cause and effect when applied to the operations of matter, we may certainly conclude that motion may be, and actually is, the cause of thought and perception. There seems only this dilemma left us in the present case, either to assert that nothing can be the cause of another, but where the mind can perceive the connection in its idea of the objects, 
or to maintain that all objects which we find constantly conjoined are upon that account to be regarded as causes and effects. If we choose the first part of the dilemma, these are the consequences. First, we in reality affirm that there is no such thing in the universe as a cause or productive principle, not even the deity himself, since our idea of that supreme being is derived from particular impressions, none of which contain any efficacy nor seem to have any connection with any other existence. As to what may be said that the connection betwixt the idea of an infinitely powerful being and that of any effect which he wills is necessary and unavoidable, I answer that we have no idea of a being endowed with any power, much less of one endowed with infinite power. But if we will change expressions, we can only define power by connection, and then in saying that the idea of an infinitely powerful being is connected with that of every effect which he wills, we really do no more than assert that a being whose volition is connected with every effect is connected with every effect, which is an identical proposition and gives us no insight into the nature of this power or connection. But secondly, supposing that the deity were the great and efficacious principle which supplies the deficiency of all causes, this leads us into the grossest impieties and absurdities. For upon the same account that we have recourse to him in natural operations, and assert that matter cannot of itself communicate motion or produce thought, that is, because there is no apparent connection betwixt these objects, I say, upon the very same account, we must acknowledge that the deity is the author of all our volitions and perceptions, since they have no more apparent connection either with one another or with the supposed but unknown substance of the soul. This agency of the supreme being we know to have been asserted by, as Father Malabranche and other Cartesians, several philosophers with relation to all the actions of the mind except volition, or rather an inconsiderable part of volition, though it is easy to perceive that this exception is a mere pretext to avoid the dangerous consequences of that doctrine. If nothing be active but what has an apparent power, thought is in no case any more active than matter. And if this inactivity must make us have recourse to a deity, the supreme being is the real cause of all our actions, bad as well as good, vicious as well as virtuous. Thus we are necessarily reduced to the other side of the dilemma, that is, that all objects which are found to be constantly conjoined are upon that account only to be regarded as causes and effects. Now as all objects which are not contrary are susceptible of a constant conjunction, and as no real objects are contrary, it follows that for aught we can determine by the mere ideas, 
anything may be the cause or effect of anything, which evidently gives the advantage to the materialists above their antagonists. To pronounce, then, the final decision upon the whole, the question concerning the substance of the soul is absolutely unintelligible. All our perceptions are not susceptible of a local union, either with what is extended or unextended, there being some of them of the one kind and some of the other. And as the constant conjunction of objects constitutes the very essence of cause and effect, matter and motion may often be regarded as the causes of thought, as far as we have any notion of that relation. It is certainly a kind of indignity to philosophy, whose sovereign authority ought everywhere to be acknowledged, to oblige her on every occasion to make apologies for her conclusions, and justify herself to every particular art and science which may be offended at her. This puts one in mind of a king arraigned for high treason against his subjects. There is only one occasion when philosophy will think it necessary and even honorable to justify herself, and that is when religion may seem to be in the least offended, whose rights are as dear to her as her own, and are indeed the same. If any one, therefore, should imagine that the foregoing arguments are any ways dangerous to religion, I hope the following apology will remove his apprehensions. There is no foundation for any conclusion a priori, either concerning the operations or duration of any object of which it is possible for the human mind to form a conception. Any object may be imagined to become entirely inactive, or to be annihilated in a moment, and it is an evident principle that whatever we can imagine is possible. Now this is no more true of matter than of spirit, of an extended compounded substance than of a simple and unextended. In both cases, the metaphysical arguments for the immortality of the soul are equally inconclusive. And in both cases, the moral arguments and those derived from the analogy of nature are equally strong and convincing. If my philosophy, therefore, makes no addition to the arguments for religion, I have at least the satisfaction to think it takes nothing from them but that everything remains precisely as before. End of file 37